Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today it's going to be an interesting interview. We've got Dr. Olivia Holland, who is a medical reproductive researcher. So I'm already curious. Welcome to the show, Dr. Olivia. Well, thanks very much for having me. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Okay, so my job title is postdoctoral research fellow. Um, and I'm, a, as you said, I'm a reproductive researcher. So I actually, um, I, I research medical conditions that occur during pregnancy. And what I'm interested in is what happens during pregnancy and how we can improve that health. And, and the influences also has a side of pregnancy. So a lot of what occurs during pregnancy can influence the health of both the mother and the baby after the pregnancy. Does that sound like a reasonable description or would you like some more detail? That sounds like a fantastic description. Are you able to go into some of the things that you're researching at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I'm specifically interested in the placenta. Um, hopefully people have sort of heard of the placenta. I think it's the uh, a very underappreciated organ. I work with a lot of people who also think the placenta is fantastic. So now, the placenta is the organ that joins the mother and the baby during pregnancy. And it's it's what we call a multifunctional organ. So it actually does a whole load of different things during pregnancy. Like it it produces hormones that, that change the maternal systems to make, make the pregnancy hospitable for the baby. Um, it protects the um, it protects the baby from um, damage, and that, that, that's not least of which from the maternal immune system. That's a, actually a, a really interesting aspect of pregnancy, like, um, how the maternal immune system tolerates a, a fetus which is is not uh, which is actually genetically foreign. It transfers food and energy and gases to and from the baby. So it's got all of these functions, um, and if something goes wrong, like that means it's a really important organ but it also means that it's actually quite sensitive so if something goes wrong with any one of those functions then you have problems during the pregnancy and so I guess my research is really focused on what happens to the placenta during pregnancy and how that might affect the health of the pregnancy. There was a lot in that which was really interesting. <laughs> I can cut that out. I can do more specific details around things if you're interested in anything. Well it's more that I feel like a bit of a duffer because I've never thought of the placenta as an organ. Oh, it, most people don't. I would actually say it's the most important organ you'll ever own and it's certainly the most underappreciated one. It's just that it, you, as you're a growing fetus, you can imagine you're growing all those organs and systems that you're going to use during your life. But before those are formed, something needs to do a lot of those jobs. So the doing the job of your lungs before they're formed it's doing the jobs of your kidneys before they're formed um, and then they slowly take over as they, they as the fetus grows into a uh, grows into a baby and the placenta has to change over that time um, over gestation during pregnancy um, so it, it's actually it, it's a very dynamic organ as well and then at the end of pregnancy what happens is we throw the thing away so it's for me it, it's just it's such an important before, uh, before birth, so you, it's so important for the health you the health you have during life. And I think it, it needs to be, I guess, more of a focus for us. Um, so knowing what happens during pregnancy just has such an impact later on. 
and also for the health of the mother during pregnancy. If you don't have a, a, um, a healthy pregnancy, um, then that can influence the mum's health later on. Do you want me to continue talking about the placenta? Because I can probably use up an hour doing that. <laughs> well, I just, I just sort of want to confirm something that I'm understanding so far is that it sort of sounds like the placenta is also a bit of a gatekeeper between the fetus and the mum and it's sort of allowing things to, the right things to go through. And obviously if that got sick or if that was compromised, that would be very detrimental potentially for both parties. Yeah, that's a really good interpretation. So I, I say something like it's the interface between maternal and fetal systems, but all that means is, yeah, it's a gatekeeper between mum and the growing baby. Everything that happens to the fetus during pregnancy goes through the, the placenta. So the placenta is like, yeah, a conduit, a gatekeeper for what's happening there. Um, so all the energy that mum produces and needs to get transmitted to the baby goes through the placenta. And, and you're right, if there's if the placenta doesn't function properly, then it's not doing that, that job appropriately. And it's a two-way street as well, because when the placenta doesn't function properly, it can damage mum too. So there's a disease called preeclampsia um, that's really dangerous during pregnancy. And it's characterised by maternal hypertension, which means high, high blood um, pressure. And we normally say it's, it's maternal hypertension and um, endothelial dysfunction. All that means is actually that there's a whole load of different organ systems that are involved and basically don't really understand what's going on. But every time, if, if you've been, um, well, if you've experienced pregnancy yourself or been through pregnancy, you know, seen a, a woman go through pregnancy, um, she'll get tests for blood, for her blood pressure. And also she'll have to pee in a cup quite a lot of time. So what they're checking for there is preeclampsia because the first things you see is this increase in blood pressure and also protein in the urine is a really good way of picking up some, some of the damage that's associated with it. And the reason it's such a problem is eclampsia is actually, I think it's ancient Greek for a bolt from the blue. And it's, it's really, it's referring to seizures. So, so pre-eclampsia is the condition before you get eclampsia and eclampsia are seizures. And back in the day, they used to kill a lot of pregnant women and they would just come out of nowhere. So hence the name. Um, now we understand that it's the placenta going wrong, although we don't exactly know what's going wrong. We have some ideas. We can, we can monitor these relatively subtle signs, which, you know, say the ancient Greeks didn't have the option of, of Internal blood pressure and, and organ damage, um, and but unfortunately with with preeclampsia, the only cure there is, there's no actual cure is um, ending the pregnancy. So it then becomes a real balancing act between um, how long we keep the pregnancy going, which will benefit the growing baby, or whether we have to stop the pregnancy just for the mother's health. So it's it's a it's a really serious condition, and as I said, it's it's caused by the placenta going wrong. And I can elaborate on that if you're interested. I don't know. That's sounding like seriously intense. How common? How common are issues with the placenta during pregnancy? Well, if we're talking about preeclampsia, thankfully that's not that common. About one or two percent of pregnancies, and also the more severe form that can actually. So basically, if it occurs earlier in gestation, preeclampsia is more severe. Um, if it occurs later in gestation, it's less severe, and you can kind of imagine that because um, the later on in pregnancy, um, the the less chance you have for the placenta to, to um, continue to cause damage you have more chance because you've got a baby that's, that's more developed um, so it, it's that early onset preeclampsia was actually pretty uncommon it's less than one percent um, and the later onset one or two percent so not a large number of pregnancies but it's it's such a dangerous condition that it and it's um it is as i said it is 
treated as long as it's it's well um, as long as it's well monitored. Although that that most of our treatment is actually just bed rest, but at least you can actually protect the mother's health by monitoring the pregnancy. So that's relatively uncommon, but there and that's it's an absolutely a, a placental disorder. But there are other um, probably the most common serious uh, complication of pregnancy is gestational diabetes, really big one now. Um, and gestational diabetes, what's the rate of that? In I think we're now at it's one in seven births in Australia, and that's about so about fourteen percent. Of, of pregnancies are affected by gestational diabetes. Um, and that's nowhere near as, as serious, if you like, as preeclampsia, or at least nowhere near as potentially damaging to the to health, but it occurs in a lot more pregnancies and it, it, it does have it does have ongoing implications for health as well. Um, and the thing with these um, these complications is actually once you have one, you're more likely to get another. So you, if you have gestational diabetes, you're more likely to get preeclampsia as well. And you, you use the word now with regards to gestational diabetes. Is that something that's increasing? or on... Absolutely. So gestational diabetes is now the fastest growing form of diabetes in Australia. Um, it's, it's also, yeah, it, it's big. So if you're, if I can remember right, I think the most, most recent data we have is from 2017 or 2018. It's like what it's one in seven pregnancies, but if we if you look at the different types of diabetes, so there are there are a few different types of diabetes. There are kind of three main types. There's type one diabetes, um, and that's the sometimes called the the childhood or early onset diabetes, and that that's actually a, an autoimmune condition usually. There's type two diabetes, which is kind of the diabetes that everybody everybody but most people are familiar with. So that's a lifestyle associated diabetes so it's much more common if you're overweight have low physical activity um, and don't have a, a good diet and gestational diabetes that's the, the third common form of diabetes that occurs during pregnancy that's got also similar risk factors um, to type 2 diabetes so as we're uh, yeah, getting bigger and um, less active and having poorer diets and also older um, at the time of uh, pregnancy gestational diabetes has been increasing so i think like back in the 90s it was only about two percent of pregnancies maybe a little bit more 2.5 it but it's been steadily increasing so now they're actually uh, i think the diabetes australia called it a um what's the word an epidemic so it's it is a big problem so it's the fastest growing form of diabetes in australia and if you're a woman you're more likely to suffer from gestational diabetes than any other form of diabetes and the problem with gestational diabetes is, although it, it does end with pregnancy, that's that's a definition, it also um, has implications after the pregnancy. So one, one in two, so half of the women who have gestational diabetes will actually go on to develop type 2 diabetes within 5 to 10 years. And it's about 30% of children from a gestational diabetic pregnancy will also go on to develop type 2 diabetes later in life. Um, and some of that's to do with those shared risk factors, but not all of it. So some, so there, there are things that we don't completely understand that occur during pregnancy that are predisposing people to developing these complications later in life. And I guess that's that's what I'm really interested in in research, understanding those sorts of changes. That's that's all fascinating. Earlier you mentioned. I, I think that's so. good. <laughs> um, Earlier mentioned something about the placenta and the maternal immune system. I was wondering if you could, mm-hmm. like, because I think we sort of, I don't know, I guess we just think of pregnancy as, like, not easy, but sort of, like, it's all natural and happy. 
and you don't think about the immune system in there. Yeah, well, it, pregnancy definitely is. Like, it's a fantastic time. It is, it is a very natural thing, and we certainly wouldn't be here without it. Um, but what I'm referring <laughs> to then um, was really that um, if you – so I guess it's relatively simple for a chicken, right? It just lays an egg. It's not holding that, that conceptus in its body for any length of time. And when it's, uh, that egg also forms a, a complete enclosed thing, um, so there's never any direct contact between, um, or much between the, the conceptus at that point and, um, and the maternal system. Just to take a step back, the job of our immune system is really to distinguish, fundamentally to distinguish self from non-self. So what the immune system does, of course, it, it, it sort of protects you from bugs and nasties and that sort of thing. But it, it has a whole load of um, has a whole load of repertoire of um, you know, things, an arsenal of weapons it can use to do to do this. But um, it needs to know what to to fire those arsenal of weapons at, right? And so there's a if we want to talk for a long time, I can I can wax lyrical. Um, a, MHC and um, T cells and things, but basically, you you have this immune system that can has ways of, of telling the difference between self and non-self. But of course, they're they're a little imperfect. If you think about a fetus, you know, a baby, um, what's happened is mum and dad have got together, and um, half of that half of that baby's genetic makeup is dad, and half of that is mum. Once that baby's born um, and it's a, you know, it's a, a child or an adult, if you were to take, say, transplant an organ from that baby into mum, she would reject it because her immune system would, would see that as a foreign, um, see that as foreign because of the paternal, what we say, the paternal antigens. So because of those parts of dad. But during pregnancy, that doesn't happen. And that's, we sometimes call that the immune paradox of pregnancy because a lot of things have had to um, evolve and develop for us and other placental mammals or other mammals actually um, to be able to to be able to have you know, have this genetically foreign or, or partially genetically foreign being in, inside us as a woman um, for that amount of time. So that so yeah, that's really how the immune system's involved in pregnancy. So there's the placenta is really important to that we'd say tolerization of the maternal immune system to pregnancy. So being allowing the maternal immune system to be able to go ahead and, and um, continue to function. Because mum's completely, what we say, immunocompetent. Like she's not got a suppressed immune system. She's able to fight off a cold or whatever. Um, in some ways, your immune system actually sometimes, it does change, uh, but in some ways it gets a little better actually during pregnancy. And the placenta's um, really important to being able to um, maternal immune system to tolerate that pregnancy. And for example, in preeclampsia, we think that kind of goes wrong a bit. So that tolerization doesn't occur in the right way. And so maybe what we're seeing with preeclampsia is a partial rejection of the fetus, which might be like, what happens is there's effectively toxic products coming from the placenta in a way. And that might be because there's this partial immune rejection doesn't, or not quite as much tolerization as happens in a normal healthy pregnancy. Um, for for preeclampsia as well, you're much more likely to get preeclampsia if it's your first pregnancy, or if you swap sexual partners. So the um, and you're less likely to have preeclampsia if you've had unprotected sex pre prior to um, conceiving in that pregnancy. So there's a level of the maternal systems being exposed to you know dad's antigens, dad's um, that the parts of the um, paternal systems that might go and, and cause um, cause a reaction otherwise. 
and so yeah so there's there is so there's that tolerization is, is really critical to allowing the pregnancy to um, proceed appropriately and healthily yeah right because these are not things they talk to you about in like sex ed <laughs> no it yeah a lot of stuff you don't need to worry about honestly so i don't i don't want to over um like scare people about pregnancy because most pregnancies go perfectly to plan without anybody needing to know about these things. And the great thing about, especially in Australia, we have really well-monitored pregnancies. Um, You don't need to worry about most of these things most of the time. Um, But I guess as a researcher, what I like like to do um, is is worry about them for you so that, you know, I can, uh, I really want to understand fundamentally what's, what's going wrong in a pregnancy because the more we understand what about what's going wrong, the more we can understand what, what's fundamentally happening when it's going right as well. Um, but, yeah, most of the time, most families, women don't need to worry about this stuff. I personally find it really interesting, but, yeah, it's it's a, it's a little esoteric corner um, of the research world. The, the lesson that I'm learning is go to your checkups and do all the checkups that you need to do. Yes, definitely. I think every woman uh, has changed things a bit, but every woman in Australia is um, certainly used to be screened for gestational diabetes. Um, it's not a fun test, by the way. That's one where um, they have, well, it's, not, it's not painful or anything. It's just a bit annoying because relatively late in gestation, um, you have to fast overnight and then come in and they make you chug a, a big sweet drink. And then you have to sit around with somebody takes your, um, takes your blood. Um, and it's, yeah, so it, it's not, if anyone's had to do an OGTT, an oral glucose tolerance test, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. It's basically a very sickly sweet drink that you have to, you have to take all of it. Probably the only appointment at clinic where um, everybody's lined up at eight o'clock and ready to go because um, it's not over with. That sounds fair. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing all that. I'm going to, I'm going to try and pull this back on track because like I'm obviously quite curious. What does an average day at work, if there is such a thing, what does that look like for you? See, I can tell you've interviewed scientists before because, yeah, my, my first answer would be I don't have average days really. Um, I, I guess I can talk about today because today's been quite good um, in that I've got to do lab work, um, which is something I, I get to do less and less of now, but is is quite fun. Um, so, yeah, today um, I've basically been working in the lab all day doing a, a an experiment called a PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction, um, and that's a, a method of amplifying DNA. Uh, that specifically I'm doing what's called a, a quantitative or real-time reverse transcriptase PCR. So really all it's doing is allowing me to look at a way the cells are starting to respond to their environment. So I'm looking, using it to look at whether there's, there's st- a stress response in the cells. That's one typical day, I guess. Other typical days would be with COVID, I've been spending a lot of time um, working from home. Um, and so I spend a, a lot of my time, once we get data from the lab, so that's what we're trying to do is generate basically numbers for me to look at, um, I will do analysis. Um, a lot of other things I do it are around like reading the literature. Um, so I really need to know what other people have done. So that, well, one, I don't repeat it and, and two, I, I understand what happened. So, um, we kind of we generate data in the lab, but then we need to understand what that means in the context of what everybody else knows. So yeah, I spend a lot of my time reading scientific publications and, and trying to understand what other people are doing. The other stuff I do, um, so there's there's quite a lot of grant writing, which you may have may have heard about from other researchers. So that's basically 
uh, putting forward a case to be um, to ask for money to go do more research because research is it's not a, it's not a business in the same way that we generate money from sales. We kind of have to get the money first and do the work. Do that, you have to put forward a really good case around it. Um, other things I, I do um, for a, you know, often is yeah you know, spend a lot of time at my computer these days um, because I'll um, I, there I can read papers and do analysis. But I'm I'm also a member of, of lots of different sort of committees and things. So there's there's a lot of that work, which is um, for me really quite a, a really rewarding part of the job. For example, I, I'm on committees that help early career researchers getting to produce things that help other researchers that are um, a bit junior to me that are possibly, hopefully, useful and maybe I would have found useful um, at that career stage as well. Yeah, so as you can tell, there's not, I could just keep going, there's not really a, a, a typical day um, and that's probably one of the things I really enjoy about it, actually. That seems to be a very common theme is that one of the things people like about science is that you don't do a standard nine to five, like you know what you're going into every day, like it's a nice mix. Mm. I'd second that, or third, or whatever you're up to. I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the core skills you need to be able to do the work that you're doing? I'll start with the maybe the ones that might seem obvious to an outsider because you do need to have those, um, I guess, core analytical skills. Um, but by that, I just mean you need to have the ability to be precise and care about details because it, what you do is very detail-oriented. So you need to know that what you're doing, that you've got the right amount of reagent in that particular tube and that you, you're analysing this with the, the right statistical test. So, so that's really important having that sort of mind. But I think what people don't, always realises how much communication goes on in science. So I, one thing I didn't list off in my typical days is all the meetings I go to. Again, like this year, COVID changed a whole lot of things, but I also like, go to a lot, of, a lot of conferences normally, so scientific conferences, which are a great way to keep up to date with what people, what other researchers are doing. Um, and just writing about your results as well. So that, um, and so I, I do a lot of communication in terms of speaking about my results to um, different parties and um, write out my results for the scientific community and, and for um, more general audiences. So that communications are actually really key. And I'd also say just being to, able to get on with people is really important and, and that collaborative aspect. So just you can't do science alone these days. I, I think, again, maybe people have a, a perception of the, the old professor who sits alone in his, his study, but that, that's certainly not how it, it works in my discipline. Like you, you need so many people to do this research um, and I couldn't do it without like the fabulous collaborative networks I have. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say... You do need that sort of like classic precise scientific mind, but you, you also need the ability to communicate and, and to get on with people. And tenacity too would be a big one. It's hard. Like it is hard. You're doing new things. Like you wouldn't be asking the question if you knew the answer. So you never know what's going to happen and things go wrong. And that's actually part of, you know, I, I should put wrong in inverted commas because it's not going wrong as long as you've designed the experiment appropriately. You just need to figure out what happened that gave the result that you weren't expecting. Um, and so you need to be able to sort of stick at things. And a lot of the time as well, I'm talking about applying for, for funding to continue research, a lot of the time you don't get it. So you get rejected. So you have to have that tenacity and believe in what you're doing to be able to keep going. So that would be another really critical um, skill to have. 
I love that. And I, I'm always a fan of anyone who's willing to talk about things going wrong and learning from that because it's not just relevant to science, that's relevant to everyone's entire life. Absolutely. <laughs> you mentioned that you do a bit of communication to general audiences. Like, do you communicate the things that you learn so that people can actually apply it, whether it's doctors or pregnant women or? I do a little bit of that. Again, like this has got severely curtailed this year with COVID. But, yeah, I might present to um, – so I'd still put that more in the, the research um, sphere, actually. So I do present to, say, hospital audiences. So, they, yeah, you'd be talking about um, doctors and nurses and things around what I do. But because I'm a bench researcher, what I do is really um, before the clinic. So it's that the stuff I do doesn't at this point have – I hope, hope it will actually in the, in the coming years, but it doesn't at this point have a direct application to the clinic. So more talk around what I know and that that starts conversations about what we might go forward to do to, to learn more about pregnancy. So normally I, I, um, I'll present and it'll actually be more of a, um, a discussion prompt than anything else. I do do a lot of that yeah, as far as sort of what else can we do to, to improve, improve pregnancy health? You know, what other research can we do, for example? Um, I do also do um, a reasonable number of presentations to, so I, I have a, a fellowship through a group called the Alliance Medical Research Foundation, um, who are fantastic, by the way, as a shout out. And what they like me to do is, um, they, they're a community, um, so they're a philanthropic organisation, and um, they've got a large community of, of um, people. So it's a bit like a crowdfund, right? So there's a lot of people doing a little bit, um, and that will gets put together for them to generate funds. And so I just go and talk to them about what I do because they're supporting me. So, so there's that sort of thing as well. That's awesome. I love the idea of crowdfunded science. <laughs> um, we get money from wherever we can. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. How have you ended up in this role and with like a passion for the placenta and all these things? Like how have you got from high school to where you are now? Serendipity probably mostly. Um, so, yeah, I, I did do a little bit of reflecting on this. And I'd say it's not like I planned this. So I definitely, in high school, I can definitely say that I was always, I was always really, I really interested in science. I loved science. And I, I loved it for the reasons that it helped me understand the world. I just want to understand what's going on. You know, that's probably been a, a driving narrative, if you like, of, of, of my life. Like, I just, I want to know what's going on. And I just want to understand it. But the other thing I was really passionate about in high school was was fine arts as well. So I nearly went and did a fine arts degree, and you know, it's like painting and things. Um, and I, I think they're actually like science and, and fine arts is actually more similar than people realise because there's a huge amount of creativity in science. Like we're always creating new things. So yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't like I was in high school going, yep, I'm going to university and I will end up being a placentologist. Um, what happened was I just followed my nose. So I got, got out of um, high school and went, I quite enjoyed science and I quite enjoyed art, um, went to my local university, which is, that was in New Zealand, so it's the University of Auckland, looked at what um, the degree offerings were and decided I'd do a bachelor's degree was in science um, and started doing that and really enjoyed it. And what happens is at the beginning with the bachelor, um, it's a little bit like high school, you get a very broad base. Um, so they kind of teach you everything and they sort of need to because at that point you don't know what you're doing. Um, and I just found, and then the next, so bachelor's is, is usually three years. And so I, I did that and I, and then later, like three, in the first year they tend to sort of just, you have no choice if you like about what you're doing. They teach you the fundamentals of a lot of different things. And then in the subsequent years, you get the chance to pick things that interest you or particularly 
pick what topics you're going to um, study further. So by the third year, I'd sort of decided I, I had particular interests in particular areas. And it was actually around genetics. So again, it wasn't in reproduction or in the placenta or anything like that. Um, so by the end of my bachelor's, I'd sort of found that I, I really liked this, this particular area of science. Um, and then I took a gap year, which I'd highly recommend if you can. Yes, I, I do want to go back to university. And then I did a, a master's. Um, so in Australia, it's actually more common to go and do an honours degree. New Zealand, at least at that time, was more common to do a master's. It doesn't really matter. They're effectively the same thing. A master's is um, is longer, so you get a little bit more chance to relax. And honours is very short and sharp. It's only a year. Master's is two years. Um, and so I did a, um, a master's and um, I did a, a, a research project in that, which I really enjoyed. I thought, this is actually, I, I really am enjoying doing the research. And so then I went on and did a, a, a PhD, and that's that's. A PhD takes you something between three and five years. I, I, mine was about four years, which is about average. And that's really when I started to get interested in, in the, the, the reproductive side of things. Um, and it, But it wasn't until I finished my PhD that I actually sort of moved to do medical science. So prior to that, I was more in, I actually did my PhD in immunocontraceptives. So that's harnessing the uh, immune system as a contraceptive. So you, you basically retarget the immune system to destroy part of the reproductive system or at least to suppress part of the reproductive system. And we were looking at that as a way of pest control. So you see, I've started some quite different things, but it was that, that it's always been for me the aspect of just, I just really just have followed my nose for what I've been interested in. And I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a, a typical experience, but I wouldn't say it's atypical either. There are so many different roads to get to research. Um, and the only common factor I can I can see with the the only common but a very common factor with research is is just that curiosity and that passion um so you know it's not like this is the only way that you you end up where you are no there can be so many different options what did you do on your gap year in my gap year I went to America and I worked as what they called an interpretive naturalist at an aquarium in um, San Francisco where I just basically told people about fish mostly not to touch them like we had, they had, there were particular pools where you could put your hand in. There were some fish you were allowed to touch, some you weren't. I also worked at a big toy store over Christmas, which is quite an experience in um, when you're coming from um, New Zealand to um, the middle of one of the, the biggest cities in America and, and working retail at Christmas. One, that was also probably quite fundamental to me deciding that I didn't want to, um, I wanted to go back to university and learn some more as opposed to sort of continuing on in retail. <laughs> Um, but then I also went traveling around. So there's, um, again, like things have probably absolutely changed this year, but the visa that I was on allowed me to work for a certain number of months and then stay on and travel for another month or so, I think it was. So it was a really nice way to see a bit of North America. Fantastic. And I think those those kinds of experiences are so important for not just rolling out of high school and continuing on and just being like you're doing it because you're doing it, but having an experience where you're like, well, I don't want to do that. Actually, university suddenly, you know, I'm a lot more passionate about what I'm going back to do. Yeah, I would absolutely say that. Um, you know, and I found um, it, it really focused what I wanted to do. And it meant I think I, I wouldn't be the same person had I just kept going through university. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But, yeah, I just life's it's all about experiences. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that as a, as a time there. And it's, I don't think anyone should really feel that they need to rush to get to particularly, you know, you need to finish high school and get to university and get through your bachelor's and get to the next degree and work your way through, and, you know, like whatever, you're heading to medicine or um, heading to be a lawyer or whatever, and that you've got this career path. It's like, well, just 
there's nothing wrong with stopping and taking a breath. You know, a year makes very little difference in the end. And it can make, at least, you know, as, as far as your um, career trajectory goes, but it can make a huge difference to you as a, as a human, as a person, if you get a bit more exposure to the world. Um, one great thing about, um, again, this year is, is so atypical, um, but one great thing about research is you get to do a lot of traveling. So going to those conferences and, you know, that's been almost one of the, one of the things I've, I've loved most about the research as well. There's a lot I really enjoy about my job. There's some things I don't as well, but, you know, going and actually being able to, um, to go to a different country and just see how different people think um, it, it's, that's, that's really valuable. Um, and yeah, I, I certainly, I'd encourage everyone to try and do something like a gap year, even if this year's obviously a write-off for actually going overseas. If you can just take a break from study, that that can be really beneficial. I couldn't have said that better. I want to know, though, with the immune system contraceptives, do they work? Uh, So that was actually, would you believe it was immune contraceptive developed for possums? So brush-tailed possums are a pest in New Zealand. Yep, they love them in Australia, not so much in New Zealand. They were introduced as to start a fur trade and they they've run rampant ever since they love the new zealand flora so eating all of the um all the the beautiful trees and things and and also some of the fauna unfortunately and and they're also a uh, a vector so they transfer bovine tuberculosis so the farmers are are not great fans of them either there's big control measures in new zealand to um to try and stop possum spread but a lot of those are lethal um, you can't just go and trap and shoot possums. We can, but the problem is that they live in places that humans cannot get easily. The the way that they're controlled, or at least they used to be when I was doing my PhD, I'm probably a little bit out of touch with possum control now. They drop a poison called 1080, um, and that, um, and then the possums will will eat that. So they actually go through with um, with aerial drops. So that that's flying helicopters to very inhospitable areas of bush and, and dropping this poison, and the possums will eat it. Usually, it's it's coated carrots that kills them but of course you can imagine that's that's not necessarily the most popular thing with a lot of people going and dropping a whole load of poison over over relatively pristine areas of New Zealand bush um, also like it, it's actually a, a relatively um, humane um, method of, of killing and it also the the great thing about that particular poison is it it, oh, it, it leaves the systems like um, things like the wall system pretty quickly but um, it's still obviously not optimal doing something like that. So the project I was part of was just trying to develop this immunocontraceptive as a way of controlling possums because the theory goes that if you um, if you introduce a, a contraceptive, that the possums stop breeding so you never, never create the next generation of possums. It's just a, it's a non-lethal way of controlling them. And there's a lot of, but there's a lot of issues there. So if you think about what you could do, you could say, create a, a contraceptive that's able to be um, transmitted, right? So you, you have um, something that, that you put it in a vector, like a bacteria or something, but then what if it's not specific to the possum? Um, and what if some other animal ends up getting, let's just say, infected by that and it causes an immunocontraceptive effect? So you might you might stop cats and dogs or something, although that getting rid of feral cats and dogs would actually be great in New Zealand from reproducing. Maybe stop kiwis from reproducing. That would be a hell of a, uh, sorry, that would be quite a big jump for species. You can see the non-specificity could be a real issue. And also um, Australians quite like their possums. So if the contraceptive was to get over here, that could be a, a big problem. And it would be more likely to maybe affect other marsupials as well. And so you've got 
of issues. And also the what the part of the project I was working on um, was really that they, they developed a contraceptive, an immunocontraceptive, but what they were finding, and this was in the lab, so was giving it by injection and just um, and also um, beta delivery, so in their food. And what they found was that some individuals, so some individual animals would, would become um, infertile or subfertile, but others wouldn't. And it was hard to understand what was going on. So my job in my PhD was actually to characterise a very poorly characterised um, immune system. It was the possum. So we know a lot about the human immune system, but we know very little about possums. So um, my part of the project was really looking at the problems associated with this immunocontraceptive that was being developed um, and the reasons that there might be those, those issues. Um, and we got a, a reasonable distance um, with the development of it, but it's never been certainly been taken um, past the, the research point because of probably those problems that I'm talking about. Like the, you never, you can't seem to get every individual. And then you also have those potential issues um, with, um, you know, once you've released something like that, if it's in a, a self-replicating vector, what we call it then how do you control it? So um, there's, I guess there's levels of work, but it's never got to the point where it's been something that could actually be used as a control, um, as a population control for a pest species. And maybe that's got something to do with, yeah, the, the level of variability I ended up finding. Because the, the possum immune system was actually reasonably variable, which was really interesting to me. That is fascinating. You'd sort of assume they're all the same. So variability is actually a really key part of the immune system as well. But again, if I start talking about that, we'll probably be here for Okay, in that case, I'll continue on to the next question. What is the coolest thing about your work? What helps you get up in the morning and be enthusiastic about going into the office or going into the lab? Or even just getting out of bed and walking to my computer that's set up in the kitchen, which is what's happening more these days. (laughs) Or that, or that. Probably I've I've sort of um, alluded to it a little bit already. Um, It's like no no day is the same for a start. So that that really um, helps in your motivation to, um, to go and do stuff. And it's for me, I'm just, I'm pathologically curious. I want to know what's going on in the world. Um, so I really enjoy the creativity and the novel aspects of my work. So what really gets me going, you know, gets me up in the morning, gets me looking at the computer and things is that I get to look at new data. So the fundamental thing about research, I guess I really love is that I get to know something that nobody else knows. Before anybody else knows it, most of the time I don't understand it when I look at it. Um, but after a, a lot of cognating, I, I, I hopefully get some at least some hypotheses. Um, but yeah, it's just that yeah, science is kind of the only, and probably why I went with science as opposed to fine arts in the end, because they both have that creative aspect. But science is really the only discipline I know, or only only job that I can think of, where your your job is fundamentally to find things out and to to generate completely new knowledge and when you're the ones you know doing that experiment in the lab or more often actually looking at the data after the experiment's been done you actually know something that nobody else knows and it's it's almost the only place you can do that everything else is just recycled knowledge so so that that really excites me and that that gets me out of bed in the morning and yeah other aspects I, I guess it's the um being able to this sort of thing, um, being able to sort of talk about my research um, and fundamentally, like be a, that communication is really great. And fundamentally, the reason we do research is we actually, we want to know what's going on, but we also want to improve the world in some way. So most researchers are looking to, to try and make a difference in a positive way. 
Um, and for me, I guess, because I'm in medical research, it's relatively obvious. I'd like to sort of improve human health. Um, but if you look at my PhD there, we were trying to um, improve the environment. So there's just so many ways that research can help. And I guess that's also a big motivator for me. Both of those are fantastic. Like the thrill of the new and also the thrill that potentially that new thing you found is actually going to help someone. Also, we hope anyway. <laughs> well, you, you don't know until, you know, you try it out and get statistical significance, yep. blah, blah, blah. But yep. still, there's the potential, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Have you got any advice that you would give to a young person considering like a career in medical research? It depends on, I guess, the young person who's considering it. Um, I say if it's something you want to do, absolutely go for it. I, I really do enjoy my job. Um, like there's definitely aspects like um, that I enjoy less than others, shall we say. There's like marking and grant reviewing. But even though that can be interesting, every job's going to have a hard, hard slog. But there's a lot of reward with medical research or probably with any, any research, actually. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd recommend if, if it's something that you're, you're interested in, at least start looking at um, it as a possible research, as a possible um, job. Because I just, uh, I didn't, in high school, I don't think I even had the concept properly of what, um, of what a scientist does or a researcher does. And, and probably, obviously, I didn't have a concept of what an engineer does or a policeman does or anything in any way. So it's not like I, I, it's not like research was specifically something I just didn't understand. I just didn't understand anything. But yeah, if you're, if you're a curious person, like for me, it was, I guess, a bit of an epiphany that I can have a job where I get to just ask questions all the time. And I get to answer those questions myself, you know, that, that, and so if you're that sort of person, you know, this, say this career path is absolutely for you. But um, I also would say it's, it's hard. Like it really is hard. Like I said before, you don't, we, we talked about mistakes earlier, right? And mistakes, again, I don't even like using that word because they're not really mistakes. They're just part of the process, but they're going to happen. Um, and you've just got to have the resilience to be able to deal with them. And also, but you learn that over time. And also um, I talked about applying for money to be able to do research and you'll get rejected a lot of the time. Um, so that's no fun. Um, and also it's, there are really good scientists that, and researchers that don't get funded for their research. Um, there's not enough money to fund research currently. Um, and that's, you know, that's, all, that's always, I guess, been the nature of the beast, but that makes it a really difficult career path in some areas. So there in some ways. Um, so it, it's something you, like if you're interested, you can say if you're a high school student, say really do look into it as a potential career path, but you're not going to university and getting a bachelor's degree. It's not committing you to doing it either. So you, you learn and you understand what's going on. The more you do, the more, the more you, the more you spend time doing these things, the more you understand what's going on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard work, but it's incredibly rewarding. Um, so I'd say if I can be succinct, which I clearly haven't been, um, it just, if you like asking questions and have a fundamental curiosity, this is absolutely a fantastic way to, to make money and to spend your time. I do feel like basically the job of a scientist is just to be nosy. And it's just like poking the universe and being like, why are you like that? That's a very good way of putting it. Obviously, it's a lot more serious than that. And, you know. Yeah, well, sometimes. Like some of the best ideas I've ever had have been at a pub over a beer chatting to other scientists. Um, and, yeah, we're, we all just we all just do, we all, yeah, we're just, we're pathologically nosy and that's now we're, we're paid to be. 
And I think what you said about a bachelor's isn't locking you in is a really important thing for people to hear because you can go to university, you can do your master's, you can do an honours degree. It doesn't mean, like if you get to the end of that and you're like, oh, actually this isn't for me, that isn't time wasted, that you've still developed a whole lot of skills that will be valuable wherever you choose to go in the future. Absolutely. Um, it's For me it was so fantastic going to university because it's very different from high school. Um, in the, fundament, the, the fundamental difference um, would really be how self-directed it is. Um, and so suddenly you're your own boss and doing your own thing. You're responsible for yourself as well. So um, it, it's just, it, it's a it's a really fundamental um, change in the way you think about things. And it's just, university is just great fun. And, yeah, so don't think that if you do a bachelor's in science or whatever, that it means you now are directly on the career path to be a professor um, that's certainly the way there's so many different options um, and if anything more people seem to um, do a bachelor's and they decide they want to go other places and stay in research anyway. Which is probably a good thing like there is a limit to the number of like super curious people we can have at one time. Yeah yes yeah I, I guess so but I actually think everybody is a scientist we're all real curious like I just do it for a job. I was talking to my aunt the other day who's a trained nurse and she was making sourdough bread as we all have been down in Melbourne and she's like I just realized I'm doing science and I was like yes you are (laughs) fantastic everything is science the human is kind of set up that way I think Um, like we're set up to ask questions and want to understand and so just science is just a way of formalizing that but isn't it great to be paid to do something that you find just enjoyable and, and yeah, a way of finding things out? It's such a privilege. Is there anything that you wish the general public understood about the research you're doing? Like are there myths out there that you'd really like to get squashed or information you think that needs to be shared more broadly? I guess not so much specifically about the research I do, but I'd say in general um, – the I, what uh, what frustrates me most when I see an interpretation of, of science properly in the media is is that be, the belief that there's a specific truth, whereas science is it's self what we do. Um, so I I do an experiment, I get some data, I interpret that data, and I publish a paper, and I say this is what I think is happening, and someone else goes. Yeah, I think that that might be the case, and yeah, I, I support you. Or someone else says, "No, you were misinterpreting that. I think it's, it's this way." Or they go off and do a, an experiment that tests my hypothesis, and they're like, "No, we didn't find something that's confirmatory to to you. We think something else is happening." Or someone else goes and repeats my experiments, and they they confirm the hypothesis. Um, and so it's just it's testing. I might do the same thing. I come up with a, I get some data. I I come up with a hype, I interpret what I think is going on, and then I go and I do some more experiments. And I say, actually, you know what, I was wrong. It's not the way I thought it was. That's that's how science works. And I think I see in the in the media this presentation of that as um, scientists don't agree. Um, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They say one thing and then they say another. And then um, what do they mean anyway? They said last year they were saying this, this year they're saying that. Like it's not like there's one voice for science anyway. It's a whole load of us just arguing all the time anyway. Um, and it's this, it's fundamentally self-correcting. So there's nothing wrong with saying you think this is what's going on and then later on saying actually with more evidence, I think this is not what's going on. I think something different is going on. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to get that across to the general public that it's – 
just don't it's it's an in, inappropriate interpretation of science to think of something as, as right i mean even some of our biggest scientific tenets things like the, the theory of evolution which i actually subscribe to um you know if we were to find um, you can you can't prove anything in science but you can absolutely disprove it so we've got huge amounts of evidence for evolution and um i don't think there's, there's going to be anything we'll disprove it um but if we were to find some good evidence that actually um countered that theory we'd have to think of another um another reason uh, so it's it's more it's a case of always things are changing always things are developing and that's one of the great things about science but yeah it becomes misinterpreted as we scientists can't agree on things and scientists don't know what they're talking about and so it's like that's probably what i'd most like to get across to people in general i like that because i there's this idea that scientists is a group and like one of the ones that comes to mind i saw like two articles on a new site within a very short period of time one said scientists say you should you shouldn't um make your bed at the beginning of the day and another article said scientists say you should make your bed at the beginning of the day and i was like (laughs) well a someone probably like should have surely an editor should have picked up that you've just published two completely opposite pieces of information but also like who are scientists yeah yeah i've seen i've not seen such a brilliant example that um but yeah i've seen certainly very very similar things uh, a lot and yeah this at this point i just have to sigh and shake my head because you're right it's not like scientists we're absolutely not more things. most of the time we disagree about a lot of fundamental things um but that's not saying the sciences it, it's not i don't know i was going to say wrong i don't even want to say that it's not wrong and right it's just interpreting it it's just interpreting evidence um, and there's no real way, like no, no one's shown me a better way anyway, that to understand the world than testing a hypothesis and interpreting the evidence. That, that's kind of what we've got to understand the world. Yeah, it's the it's the tool we've got. And we, we poke at the universe, we gather data, we have a look at it, and then we poke some more. And like, it's this ongoing cumulative, never actually stops, I think. That's right. There's always more to know. And I think that's one of the myths of like science textbooks that you get at high school is they give off this impression that it's all sorted and it's not. <laughs> yeah, could not be further from the truth. Most things are, are like, even the things presented in textbooks, like the, the textbooks get rewritten relatively regularly. Um, and yeah, they, yeah, some things like, um, yeah, we've, we've got, pretty much down pat but like I said with things like everything is really just a theory in the end um, and if we got new evidence we'd, we'd have to rethink those theories. Which is terrifying and exciting at the same time. <laughs> Sounds like a, a, just a day in the life of a scientist. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't touched on? I can't think of anything particularly. It would only be to guess. Um, I, I put a plug in to in, encourage any girls that are thinking about going into science to do it. Like I'm not telling anyone to do it, but I'm saying just um, as, a, as a female in science, um, there's lots of us here now. It's fine. It's a friendly place, um, but we could always do with more. And um, it's, I, I think now, when I was growing up, I actually had huge amounts of um, support from my parents, um, but maybe not massive amounts of support through my schools and things. Um, so I, I just would say it's, it's absolutely a career you, you, you can do. There's, there's nothing fundamentally different different between the male and the female. And I actually find a lot of, especially in the, the research world, I'm in, 
um, there's a lot of women to come join the fold. It's safe. It's fun. You get to be nosy. You get to ask questions. Then you get to answer the questions. Like, what's not to like? <laughs> Other grant writing. Yeah. yeah. Even that can be fun. Bits of it. What's it? Yeah. There's there's a level of the potential and the hope and all that sort of thing. Thank you for that. I, I think that's an important one for people to hear. Have you got a shout out for us? Is there a high five, a virtual high five you'd like everyone listening to the podcast to give to anyone that you're working with or you think's doing an awesome job? Anything like that? I, look, there's so many people like I could do that for. So I, I just I I won't because if I pick one off, I get a hundred. Um, just in general, I'd say again that science is so collaborative um, and. And there's just, I, I, it, I say I a lot and it's, it's not, it's always a we. Um, there's always so many different people doing things. If, I guess if I could give one shout out that's a general one, it would be to all the women that donate their placentas. I couldn't do my research without that. That's a big one. <laughs> you're, if you're not using it after pregnancy, yeah, it can, it can be very useful for research. Um, how do they get it to you? Can they post it? Uh, so, yeah. That that might be a bit bit of a, a dangerous one to put out on the um, on the internet. That so I do raise, I do um, collections from specific hospitals. So unless you're actually approached with a um, for a study, I, it, it tends to be difficult to get placentas because we have to go through ethics applications and things like that. Um, but if you are like um, it, at the RBWA for Bristol Women's Hospital or at the Gold Coast University Hospital, hopefully, or even the Mater Hospital here, here in Brisbane as well. Um, hopefully you'll see one of our, our friendly team asking you um, if you might like to donate your placenta. And, yeah, most of the time we come and collect it, you don't need to post it. Wonderful. Do not start posting placentas, people. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also like to give a virtual high five to the Lions Medical Research Foundation for funding and like supporting your research because it's really important and they're helping make it happen and that's great they are and and they are it's, I, I i paused there and did think about giving them a shout out but i talked about them already but now that you've said it i, I will say and they they are a really great foundation um, because they support early and mid-career researchers so it's very hard if you can imagine to get big plants you kind of have to have proof that you can you can do the work but of course, that becomes a bit circular because until you have the proof to do the work, you can't get the money to get to do the work. You can't have the proof until you've got the money. Um, so what the, the Lions Medical Research Foundation Fund is, is a really critical period in um, a researcher's um, development. So that early career researcher stage where they, they, they fund ideas, really, which is, is great. Um, so hopefully I, I can go forward and, and continue doing research. And, yeah, it, it, allow, it ha definitely has allowed me to do um, a whole lot more that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Fantastic. So definitely high fives to them. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Olivia. This has been absolutely fascinating. I think we've, like, more than educated anyone who listens to this. So thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge. It's been awesome. Well, thank you. And I hope it's not been too scary. So pregnancy is natural. Most of the time it goes without a hitch. Just go to your regular appointment things. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result, 
of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions, he gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats, and he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. <laughs>